Amen. Well, if you remain standing and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We will be reading beginning in verse 12. We are going to be reading down to the end of the chapter today. Beginning in verse 12, this is what the word of the Lord says. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Let's pray one more time. Well, Father, we do thank you so much for the great passages that we have been looking at in terms of the supremacy of the new covenant, Lord, the abiding and enduring glory of the new covenant that we are in. Lord, thank you so much, most of all, for our new covenant mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who has brought us into this covenant relationship with you because of his blood and because of his atoning work. And so, Father, I pray that as we look one more time here at this great and magnificent chapter in the book of 2 Corinthians, may our lives reflect the truths that we read, the truths that we preach, and the truths that we hear. We pray your blessing over our time, Lord, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is sort of the fourth part of what we've been looking at in terms of the new covenant, and what I've entitled, The New Covenant Removes the Veil and Transforms the Soul. The new covenant removes the veil and it transforms the soul. And so what Paul is really giving us now are sort of the after effects of what the new covenant has done. And he's going to give us four, really, four results or four things that the new covenant produces. Now I want to start with the first thing because we do have four points to get to and I have one extra page of notes today. I figure, you know, it's my last sermon before I leave to vacation, so I'm going to make it a good one. So you will have to extend a little bit more grace to me today. Um, But let's begin with the very first one, and that's this. Paul's new covenant ministry produced boldness. And we see that beginning in verse 12, uh, but it spills all the way through the verse 14, and that's the section I want to look at. But I want to focus on that, that, that phrase that he uses there in verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And then he's going to go to sort of reiterate what's he, what he's already talked about in terms of the experience of the Jews in the wilderness with Moses or under Moses, that they could not they could not look upon the glory, as he says in verse 13, we are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. So therefore, what Paul is doing here is he's showing the hope of the new covenant and the boldness that results from that hope. So that the word hope is not an accident, but it is there by design. In other words, this is what the people under the old covenant did not have. Because the old covenant is characterized and described as a ministry of condemnation, because that's what it produced. The old covenant 
gave you the standard, it gave you the law, it gave you the righteousness of God, but it did not produce that righteousness in the believer or in the worshiper or in the covenant member, to be more specific. But the ministry of righteousness does. That is the supremacy of the new covenant, is that it can be described rightly as a ministry of righteousness because that's what it produces. And what is our hope? Our hope is in that righteousness, in the righteousness that the new covenant produces in the people of God. Therefore, Paul says, we have great boldness in our speech. There is no mitigation in Paul's message. There is no shielding, if you would, of the glory of the new covenant, but he has a newfound boldness, an unfounded boldness that no one has ever seen before because of the great hope contained in this covenant. But what's interesting about this is that Paul utilizes this point sort of to explain two things. Number one, obviously, he repeats the experience of the Israelites, saying that because Moses had to put a veil over his face, the sons of Israel were not able to look intently at that which was fading away. So he touches on the experience of ancient Israel, but he also reemphasizes now the experience of current Israel, the current state of Israel in Paul's day, and I would say in our day as well, but not just Israel, everyone else. Everyone else has a veil over their hearts because the veil signifies the inability to enjoy the glory of God, the inability to look intently at God's Glory, because in the Old Covenant, the worshiper was not made perfect. He didn't have the necessary righteousness to enter into God's presence the way that Moses did. Therefore, it resulted in death. It resulted in, now the point he's trying to emphasize, it resulted in a spiritual blindness that can only be removed by Christ. Now, Paul, when he says here that there was a hardness in the sons of Israel, that they were indeed hardened, what he's saying is basically that God did indeed reveal the truth. He did indeed indeed have glory, the old covenant. But because of their unrighteousness, they were hardened, and therefore they were incapable of communing with God. Remember that the law, being good, being righteous, being holy, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse Verse 12, he says, the ultimately, the problem was with the people. The people didn't have the perception that was necessary to see what the law was all about, to see what the law was really telling them. As a matter of fact, Moses will go on to say in Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 to 4, listen, God has not given you eyes to see. He has not given you ears to hear. And He hasn't given you a heart to understand. Because the people were unrighteous, God hardened them in their sin. Their sin wherein they freely rebelled against God because of their nature. See, the old covenant affected nothing in the nature of the worshiper. And that is why they couldn't look upon the face of Moses. Again, signifying not just the transient nature, the temporary nature of the old covenant, but more than that, signifying that they were unable to look upon the glory of God. Of God. They were looking at that which was fading away. The glory of the old was temporary. The glory was fading. And that is what the face of Moses signified. But the people, too, had the veil unlifted. Look at verse 14. The same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Had the old covenant not been fault, faultless, Had the old covenant not been filled with fault, rather, had it been a faultless covenant, had it been a perfect covenant, then it would not have needed another, a consequent covenant, a new covenant, a better covenant, built upon better promises, built upon a better ministry, better priesthood, better sacrifices, and a better mediator, Jesus Christ. 
Notice he says how it's removed. It is removed in Christ. That is to say, it is removed by a person's union with Christ. That is the only way spiritual blindness is removed. It is removed in Christ. It is removed by your union to Christ. By your faith in Christ. This is the only way that you will have hope in Christ alone. We sing that hymn, in Christ alone, our hope is found, because that's true. I love what the other stanzas of that hymn say, till on the cross Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. And that is exactly what the old covenant believe or the old covenant members did not have. They did not have a faith in Christ. They did not have union with Christ. Oh, but for a small remnant. Oh, but for people like Moses and the prophets. But that the great vast majority of the covenant people were still under the veil, were still blind, and they were still in need of spiritual vision. And that's exactly what the new covenant produces. Look at verse 15. But to this very day, or to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. This is hope, this life, this light, this ability to see, this spiritual vision is exactly what the Jews were lacking. This is how you live, is to have the veil removed. This is how you see, is to have your spiritual blindness removed, to have real spiritual vision and real spiritual perception. You know so many people don't have spiritual perception. They don't have spiritual blindness. They're spiritually blind to the things of God. They can't see the truth of who God is, of who Christ is. And there's nothing more important, brothers and sisters, than to be able to look upon Christ and to enjoy who Christ is and receive who Christ is. John Piper says, there is nothing more important than to look upon who Jesus really is and to savor him above all else. That's right. And that's what the Jews were lacking. They were lacking the ability to see They were lacking the ability to see because of what their heart condition was. It was a darkened heart, a hardened heart, because they didn't have the righteousness that was needed to approach God. But the good news is this, that this dilemma, this spiritual inward heart dilemma is taken away by Christ. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In other words, the blinders from your eyes, from your heart, are removed. The callous from your heart is taken away. This is just speaking about regeneration. That you have been born anew. That you have been given spiritual sight. That for the the very first time, you may have heard the reading of the Word of God over and over. How many testimonies do we know just like that? People raised in the church, sitting in the church there for years on end, and never having come to a saving knowledge in the Lord. I would submit to you that there is a key word in this passage, and it is the word turn, to turn to the Lord. The word is epistrepho. The word is used throughout the book of Acts signifying the phenomenon of repentance, repentance and faith. For example, to see sort of this word in action, Acts chapter 11, verse 19, you see it in other places in Acts, but here in 9-11 it's... It's, it's, it's a great place to see it because there is both Jew and Gentile inclusion. Look at uh, verse 19, Acts 11. He says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and, speaking, uh, and began to speak to Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number believed and epistrepho turned to the Lord. 
Isn't that amazing, this, this, this phenomena? There is faith and there is repentance. Repentance and faith. And that is how a person comes, obviously, into salvation. But that is how a person has their blinders removed, the veil that lies over their heart, that hardens their heart, that, cannot, that keeps them from seeing the glory of God. That's when it is removed. Matter of fact, Paul says... The veil is removed whenever this happens. And I like that he used that word, whenever. It sort of extends this idea and gives it a timeless quality. Whenever this happens. That means right now in the 21st century. If someone turns to the Lord, the veil will be removed. And that's what we ought to pray for. In our prayer meeting today, I prayed, God, please, Do great things in the souls of people. Change the souls of people. Instead of praying about my ministry or our church or growing the church or talking about marketing the church and those things, my brothers and sisters, we ought to be focused on souls. We should be focused on the fact that God has to open up the eyes of the blind if they are to see. Our prayer meetings should be falling over with people, praying and crying out to God to save every blind person that we know, spiritually speaking. We should be on our hands and knees, crying out to God to save the people we say we love. Not because we don't believe in the sovereignty of God, we do. But because we know that God is pleased to use the prayers of His saints. We know that God loves to use the prayers of His people to do great and mighty things like bring spiritual awakening to a person's soul. And so, brothers and sisters, we ought to be praying for this to take place. We ought to be praying that people above everything else, that they would come to faith. Yes, come to church, but come to faith. There's nothing wrong with coming to church. You know, my wife and I once, we were, de- doing a, um, we were doing a radio spot for Wretched Radio, an evangelism encounter, and uh, uh, somehow we indicated on a blog that we invited the person we were witnessing to, we invited him to church. Well, to my great surprise, I got a scathing email from someone, somebody out there saying, you guys should not be going around inviting unbelievers to church. Church is for believers, not unbelievers. And, uh, of course, I responded by saying, the only problem with inviting unbelievers to church is if you're trying to make the church for unbelievers. So that all you're doing in church is just preaching an evangelistic message week after week after week. And so that God's people come here week after week after week and all they hear is get saved over and over and over. And finally, people will say, we are saved Now what? So there's nothing wrong with inviting an unbeliever to church as long as you don't make the church for them. We don't change the doctrine. We don't change the teaching. We don't change the theology. We don't change the practice. We don't make it more palatable so that people can receive Jesus easier. We don't don't water down the message so that they will not be offended and they will want to stay. Now, my friends, our preaching should always be that the elect will come and the non-elect will be hardened and will reject the message. It is what Paul talked about there in chapter 2, that we are a savior either of life to life or death to death. But we never change the message. But we always should, we always should do everything we could do to get a person to faith. Bring them to come and hear the Word of God Because you know and I know that God uses His Word to regenerate the heart. That's what He uses. He uses His Word to quicken the heart and quicken the mind and awaken and create new life in an unbeliever. So that where there was once death, there will be life. Where there was darkness, there will be light. You know that faith is an interesting thing. Actually, faith is quite an amazing feature of the New Covenant. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 12, the law is not a faith. The law is the antithesis to faith, we could say. It is faith that God has chosen to awaken people to the reality of who Christ is. 
For this reason, God gives faith a privileged status. It is God's instrument of choice to bring about regeneration. I love what Thomas Brooks, old uh, English Puritan, said. This is quoted by Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, or Spurgeon quoting uh, Thomas Brooks, he says, Christ often takes the crown off of his head and puts it on the head of faith. No wonder that Christ would crown faith. Because of all of the graces, faith takes the crown off of man's head and puts it upon the head of Christ. You see what faith does? Faith strips away the righteousness of man. Faith strips away the merit that man thinks he has. Faith will take away all that man thinks will commend him before God. Faith makes it impossible for man to earn his salvation. Faith is God's instrument of choice to bring His Spirit to us. But not only did the new covenant produce true spiritual vision, but it also produced liberation. That is, Paul's new covenant ministry produced liberation. Look at verse 17. An amazing verse. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And I think that's an amazing, uh, that's an amazing point for Paul to, to highlight here. And I think what he's doing here is he's drawing yet another antithesis to the Old Covenant. Whereas the Old Covenant, you know that under the law that you were under an unbearable burden, a bondage, so that if you wanted to be justified by the law, you were obligated to keep the whole law an impossible burden to bear. But where the Spirit moves on a person, there is liberty. What? From the law? No, not from the law, but we could say the liberty or the freedom to keep the law, to fulfill the law, to do naturally the things in the law, because God has given you a heart to know Him. This is exactly what the people of God in the Old Covenant did not have. So, for example, Isaiah talks about this very thing. Isaiah 6, verse 9, he says, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but you do not perceive. Keep on knocking, but you do not understand. God says, render the hearts of this people insensitive. That's what's provided in the New Covenant. A sensitive heart to respond to the will of God. He says their ears are dull, their eyes are dim. Otherwise, they might see. Otherwise, they might hear and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. But God, in His sovereignty, does not permit those who do not have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them to have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to understand. The Spirit, though, is exalted here in such a way that His deity is proven. He says here, now the Lord is the Spirit. Now, I think it's amazing, an amazing thing that Paul's doing here. Why would he begin the passage that way? Why would he begin it with pneumatology, with the, the study of the Spirit? What is his agenda in trying to prove the lordship of the Spirit? Well, because throughout this entire exposition of the New Covenant, he has been exalting the person of the Spirit and his work in the heart of God's people. And he's saying that this Spirit, the Spirit of God, is no less than Yahweh. He is Yahweh himself. So that has major overtones for people who are thinking about the Yahweh of the Old Covenant. The Spirit is no less Yahweh than Jesus is Yahweh or the Father is Yahweh. See, the authors of Scripture have no problem naturally flowing in and out of talking about the Lordship of the Father, the Lordship of the Son, and the Lordship of the Spirit because they are all Lord. But also notice... He is very careful to keep us from any heresy like modalism. He does not say the Lord Jesus is the Spirit. He does not say the Lord Father is the Spirit. 
He is very careful to decipher between the members of the Godhead. But his point is this, I believe. When he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. What's his point? That this Spirit is in keeping with God's covenant promises. That this is actually part and parcel of the new covenant that was predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament. Where is the Spirit? Ezekiel chapter 20, uh, 36, verse 27. He says that He would sprinkle water on us, that He would wash us, that He would give us His Spirit. And also Jeremiah 31, verse 33 says that He, will sp- he would put His Spirit within us. This passage out of 2 Corinthians 3.17 is the fulfillment, we could say, is one of the proof texts of the fulfillment of this new covenant prophecy. And this is his point, that where the Spirit of Yahweh is, where Yahweh is Himself, and the Spirit is Yahweh, and therefore where He is, there is freedom. You see, it is all determinative for the people of God to have the Spirit of God. His presence among us is what distinguishes us. And on top of that, he, ex- he extends the experience of Moses with God on the mountain, there with Moses communing with Yahweh, He now extends that to every New Covenant believer so that every New Covenant believer who has the Spirit, who has Yahweh in his heart, is beholding the same glory that Moses beheld at the mountain so that geographical location is no longer relevant. You don't need to be in the wilderness of Sinai. You don't need to be in a temple in Jerusalem. You don't need to be anywhere than where you're at. And if you have the Spirit within you, you now have the liberty and the capacity to behold His glory. What a marvelous, marvelous thing that God has done. He has opened up what the book of Hebrews calls a new and living way. A new and living way. But let me just stress that the grace of God in the new covenant does not produce antinomianism. We all know what antinomianism is, right? It comes from two Greek words, meaning against and law. So literally, antinomianism means against the law. That is to say that by God liberating us from being justified by his law, he does not produce lawlessness in us. No, as I've instructed, I've taught already, It is quite the opposite. It is amazing, but that the glory of God in the new covenant actually teaches us how to be godly and holy and how to love and keep God's law. It's the complete opposite. For example, look at Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, which is just an amazing exposition of what Paul was talking about in Romans 6 when he says, Should we sin because grace abounds? God forbid. Look at what grace does. Titus 2.11 The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness. You see that? To deny ungodliness and to deny worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us, here again, from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. That is what God's new covenant ministry has done. It has produced in us a godliness, a sanctifying hope, an eschatological hope, a purifying hope in the soon return of the Lord Jesus. The power of liberation is the power to sanctify. That's what it is. We have been liberated to live holy unto the Lord. It's amazing. But now, let me bring us to the fourth thing that the ministry produces. Not just 
Does it produce spiritual vision? Does it produce liberation and boldness? But it also produces transformation. So going on from this idea of sanctification now, look at verse 18. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. There again, re-emphasizing the deity of the Spirit. But listen, look how amazing this passage is, how it starts. He says, but we all. What is that a contrast with? But. Whenever you see the word but in the Scripture, he's making some sort of contrast. The contrast is between the experience of Moses and the Israelites, right? Moses was the only one at least in that text, uh, Exodus chapter 34, who was allowed into the presence of God to behold His glory, to go up to the mountain, and of course return and have to put the veil back on because the people were not ready to see or not able to see the glory that was shining from His face. But Paul says, in the new covenant, we all. It is better because it is more comprehensive There are no New Covenant members who do not behold the glory of God. Everyone, if you are truly in the New Covenant, you are a participant of the glory of God. You do see the glory of God. You do experience the glory of the Lord. The Shekinah glory. Not visibly, so that we come into the sanctuary and nobody's face is glowing. I guess maybe if you turn the lights on bright enough, my face might start glowing. But that is not the Shekinah glory. No, the glory has undergone a different, a a change in itself. Let's go on and I'll show you that. He says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So it is that glory that we are seeing here And then he goes on to say that we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Interesting thing. I want to to show you that this passage, in my opinion, is giving us three aspects of sanctification. He's giving us both the definitive and the progressive aspect of sanctification. We know that the definitive aspect of sanctification happens when the veil is taken away. What is definitive sanctification? It means that there has been a once-for-all break with the world. There has been a once-and-for-all breach with sin. It does not mean that you are sinless, but it means that you have been, upon conversion, upon regeneration, you have been once-for-all separated for holy purposes. The word sanctification means to set apart. And depending on what context you find in it throughout Scripture, something can be sanctified for holy purposes or for unholy purposes. Now, obviously, in salvation, holiness is the point. We are being set apart. We are being sanctified for holy reasons. Definitive sanctification means that we no longer live under the antichrist system of the world. It is the wicked, it is the unbeliever, Scripture tells us, that is under the sway of the evil one. All unbelievers are under the sway of the evil one. That is, they are under his antichristian influence, made up of governments and philosophies and ethics and moral standards that are fundamentally anti-God, and ultimately anti-Christ. We can agree with Paul's assessment, therefore. 1 Corinthians is something he already told the Corinthians earlier on. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Because of definitive sanctification, we can rightly assess our previous lifestyle as that which we have been sanctified from. He says, after listing a whole list of vices... He says in verse 11, such were some of you. But what happened? Definitive sanctification happened. But you were washed. But you were sanctified, past tense. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. 
That's what it means to be definitively sanctified. And it's often represented in Scripture by the use of the past tense. Now, what about the ongoing aspect of sanctification? That is what theologians call progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification, of course, being that aspect of sanctification wherein our becoming more holy is a progressive thing. We are growing in our sanctification. It is, a, it is a, uh, an, an upward trajectory. It's not perfect. It's not, it is not uninterrupted, right? It is, a, it is a chart that I've drawn many times. You can find it, for example, in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It goes upward. You are getting more righteous, more holy in a sense. You are being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. But that trajectory is something like this. You have ups and downs, peaks and valleys, but you hopefully are moving in the right direction. And this is what he means when he says that the veil has been taken off and we have begun what he calls the mirroring process. It's an interesting word that he uses here in the Greek. The word can mean reflect. It can mean to image something, to mirror something. And obviously what we are imaging is the glory of God. That is what we are reflecting. We are mirroring that. It is as if we are the mirror. We've been placed in front of the glory of God. And what should bounce back off of us is the same glory, that same image. That's what he's talking about. Now, when you talk about image language, you know that your whole Christian life is about image? Now, you've heard the slogan, image is everything. In a different sense, image is everything. We are having our image transformed and changed. There is a metamorphosis happening in our lives. And what is that metamorphosis exactly? There are degrees here, right? It's not just the glory of the Lord, the shining, the effulgence, what people have called the brightness of His glory, the light that you would have seen emanating off of the face of Moses. But the glory of God also stands for God's moral purity. It stands for His perfections. And to give us even a Christological understanding of this, we are told explicitly in Scripture that Jesus is Himself that very image. Look at, just jump down to chapter 4 here, 2 Corinthians. In verse 3 he says, even if our gospel is veiled, notice he continues the veiling language, notice sort of the, the new connotation is taken on. Who's veiled? What are we veiled to now? The gospel. Interesting. We'll have to wait till we get there. But they are veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He is, according to Hebrews chapter 1, the exact representation of God. And I praise God for Christ. I thank God that God has given us His Son, that we can look at the Son, we can look at Jesus Christ. If we want to know what is God like, look at Jesus. Because He is Himself, God of very gods, He is therefore the very image of God. But what's interesting about this image language, my friends, stay with me, is that the image language has great and many practical implications for our everyday lives. Every day, these profound covenantal truths are being applied to your life and to mine. After all, the the sanctification process happens Monday through Saturday, right? Just as much as it does on Sunday. Probably more so, right? That's when the tests really come. That's when we'll really find out what are you really imaging? What are you reflecting? Are you truly reflecting the glory of God? Are you really being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ? Now, it has everything to do with how we act, how we behave, how we think, our motives, our thought life. It has everything to do, brothers and sisters, with our conduct and our character. Look with me at a couple passages. Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. 
give us an example of this. And it is in chapter 3 that Paul, after all, is telling us to put off certain attributes and to take on different ones. He says, but now, verse 8, but now also put them all aside, these sinful things. He adds to them anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices. See, you are not rightly imaging the glory of God, you are not rightly reflecting or mirroring the image of God if you are engaged in these practices. You are not telling the adequate story of what God's glory is like, of what Jesus is like, we could say. You are not mirroring the right things. Instead, he says in verse 10, we've put on the new self, who is being renewed, kind of going along with the word here in 2 Corinthians, transformed, renewed, to what? A true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. But actually, if your Bible says image there, it's not original. It's not in the original. The original, or actually, I'm sorry, it, that is the next phrase. Sorry, I got these two mixed up. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23. This is the parallel passage. These passages kind of help to explain themselves. See that? In Colossians, he is, he is focused on your knowledge, what you think, what you know, your worldview. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 23, he says this. And that you be renewed, same word, in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. That's the phrase I was talking about. Likeness of God. It just The phrase is literally according to God. In other words, there is an analogy to God. Your life should be analogous to God. You should be walking around. The communicable attributes of God should be flowing in and out of your life. Listen to what he says. He says, in the likeness of God which has been created in righteousness, holiness, and truth. That is what it means to reflect the glory of God. Image has everything to do with our conduct, our speech, our character. This transformation, therefore, has huge implications for the way that you and I live our day-to-day lives. What about contentment? Jeremiah Burroughs focuses on the issue of contentment because he says that contentment in a unique way brings you closest to, to with our language here, to imaging or reflecting who God is. Listen to what he says in that famous book that Jeremiah Burroughs wrote, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He says, by contentment, the soul comes to an excellence near to God himself. yes the nearest possible. A contented man is a self-sufficient man. And what is the glory of God but that to be happy and self-sufficient in himself? Isn't that wonderful? To be content means that you are like God, that you are being transformed and renewed into the very same image and glory it is no wonder, therefore, that Paul should, should say that all of this glory, no longer in the face of Moses, but look at 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Now it's in the face of Jesus. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amazing. Amazing. And lastly, brothers and sisters, lest we think, okay, now I will take it from here. Lest we think, now I'll, put, I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I will begin doing this entire list that, you, that I've written down from your notes today, and I'm going to start keeping this and doing this right. And brothers and sisters, as much as, we, as much as we agonize in our sanctification, as much as we strive to be holy, as much as we work to be godly, don't ever forget that it is God who is at work 
both in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. He emphasizes this by that last phrase. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. One degree of glory to the the next. One glory at a time. God is patient with us. But He says, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So one more time, He says, the Lord basically is the Spirit. And the Spirit is the Lord, the deity of the Holy Spirit. But His point is this. This is the source of your sanctification. Sanctification is definitive. Sanctification is progressive. But there is also a source to our sanctification. And it is not your strength. It is not your power. It is not your intelligence. It is not your intellect, your genius. It is not your system of routines that you come up with and write down. It is not your religiosity. My friends, our fuel for holiness is the Spirit Himself. He is the source. So where He says, just as from, it means that the Spirit, the Lord, He has all of the, he has all of the necessary resources that we need to be holy. He has all of the resources that you need to live the Christian life. And now that you're in the new covenant, you have free access to those resources by faith. You can come to God by faith. You can come to the Spirit by faith. You can ask your Heavenly Father for all that you need in your Christianity. There is no such thing as a Christian life that is is lived independently of the power of God. And usually... When things are going wrong in your Christian life, it's because you're depending on your own resources. And you have not spent adequate time in prayer. You have not spent adequate time in the Word. You have not spent adequate time in spiritual things. Instead, you have spent time on merely carnal things, physical things, external things, outward things. But God is calling us to holiness, brothers and sisters, and this is something that is sorely lacking today. We have so many challenges to holiness, right? We have so many things that inhibit our walks with God. We have so many things coming at us, bombarding us, keeping us from going to God for these resources. We're too busy. We are too entertained. We have too much time on our hands. We're too idle. We have too much work to do. We have too many bills. We have too much stress. We have too much activity going on throughout the week. We are simply at times, I think, too busy to be holy. To be godly means that you may have to sacrifice some things to make spiritual gains. We know that exercise is good. What does Paul tell Timothy? It is good. But spiritual exercise has great benefit, not just for this life, but for the life to come. Good, I'm glad you're on a diet and that you're losing weight and you're getting in shape and you're real serious and motivated about it. But I want to see you more motivated about your spiritual condition than anything else. That should take number one priority in our lives. There is no excess to the Spirit in our lives. Do you know that? This is what I, I don't know if I entitled it, but I came up with this phrase, divine dissipation. Give yourself entirely to the things of God. Don't be afraid to go to God, to seek God, to arouse yourself, to press in and to seek the Lord with all of your heart. There is no excess God is for you. And God has everything that you need to live the Christian life. There is no governor on living in and by the Spirit. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 5 after he lists the fruit of the Spirit? Against such things there is no law. 
No prohibition as to how loving you can be to your spouse. No prohibition as to how generous you can be with your money. No prohibition as to how caring you can be to someone or how patient you can be with someone or how much you ought to engage in prayer and communion with God. There is no law against it. We are free. We have all the liberty we want to live as righteous as we want to be. Hallelujah to the Lamb. He has done it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even though You have given us such great, lofty truths, even though, God, You have opened up such a majestic way into the holy of all, Lord, even though You have given us everything that we need for life and godliness, still, I know that we have the flesh the world, and the devil. And Father, with these, we must do battle and wage war all the days of our life. And so help us, God, to live lives that are spiritually vigilant, that are sober-minded, Lord, that are not just cruising along life's path. But God, help us, therefore, to put it in gear Help us to be engaged. Help us to be intentional about our walk with Christ. Help us not just to know that God has all the resources that we need, but help us to go to You for those resources, to cry out to You. Father, You love when Your children call You Father and when they come to You as little children in need. And Father, it is Your great pleasure to give us the kingdom and Lord, and to supply us with everything that we will ever need to fight the good fight, to run the race that is set before us. But, oh God, in God's name, help us to run that race. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I wanted to leave us with Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, just following up on this idea that God has given us everything that we need to live the Christian life. He says, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence, for by these He has granted us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this reason, also applying all diligence to your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours... And are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus. For he who lacks these qualities is blind, short sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and his choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into his eternal kingdom, of the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Amen. May God give us the grace to believe that and to apply it to our lives. God bless you. I pray you'd have a great week this week. God bless you.